Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Thursday, April 6th. Welcome back to the Island College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me, obviously, and a lot has happened since we last talked on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Georgetown hired Patrick Ewing. The Lawson brothers have announced that they are transferring from the University of Memphis. Our preseason uh, CBS Sports Top 25 and 1 has been published. We're going to get to all of that. Uh, but first, obviously, let's look back at the national title game. Final score, North Carolina 71, Gonzaga uh, 65. So the Tar Heels are national champions. It's the third national championship of Roy Williams' career. He's only the sixth man in history to win at least three national titles. Norlander, you were inside University of Phoenix Stadium. Uh, what do you make of the game? What do you make of what it means for Roy Williams' uh, uh, Wikipedia page? Uh, just in general, your thoughts on on what happened Monday night down in Glendale? Yeah, it's already Thursday here. It feels like just yesterday we weren't hanging out in Phoenix. This is this is kind of crazy. The game itself, GP, uh, it was frustrating. At one point, you had basically like halfway through the second half, we had multiple occasions where the crowd was just outright booing the officials. Both fan bases were kind of frustrated. I'm of two minds of that. I know a lot has been made of the officiating. Um, I actually don't think the officiating was that terrible. Both coaches said the same. 44 fouls is a lot, but it's not, you know, epically a lot. Um, there have been many games within the season that that the 50-foul barrier has been cracked. So this wasn't – I don't even think – I haven't had the time to look this up. But I would, I would easily wager that that is uh, not the most fouls in a national title game. The officials have to legislate physicality uh, out of the game. So I think there was a balance that needed to be struck there that, that maybe they did not get entirely. Um, now, missing Kennedy Meeks' hand on the floor is obviously a gaffe, and I'll get to that in just a second here. Um, but both Carolina and, and Gonzaga play physical. Um, I think they actually play the game in, in the correct way with the, with the right amount of physicality. It doesn't muck it up too much. In fact, Gonzaga, as I had written last week in Arizona, um, between Karnowski and Collins' ability to stay vertical and that new emphasis on that on that rule where if, if you're a big man and your hands go straight up and you jump and you jump straight up and someone bumps into you, it's not a foul. They are they've been so good at that um, all season long. And Gonzaga will lose that element next year because Collins is going to go to the draft and Karnowski graduates. Um, so the the flow was frustrating. Obviously, I mean it was the toughest watch of a title game since UConn versus Butler. That was the first Final Four that I actually ever attended back in 2011. Um, so that was problematic. Uh, and, and and just because the, you know we had two one seeds, it was an anticipated matchup. Uh, both stories, either team, which would whoever would have won would have been a good story. But to get, after a solid you know semifinal pairing, and both those games were good. To have the last game of the season just end like that was a little frustrating. And then with Kennedy makes his hand being out of bounds, you know, on Sunday I went to a state of the game roundtable with some members of the media and then some other, you know, the official, the head of officiating, J.D. Collins, the head of next year's selection committee, uh, Bruce Rasmussen, uh, another gentleman who actually helps write the official language and the rules. And basically it was just a discussion about here's where we are. Here's what we might be changing. Here's what we might not be changing. Here are the things on the table. I happen to bring up the fact that in my opinion, in the final minute of play, pretty much anything should be, worthy of review um or at least just get that out there and, and let's and let's change it because what happens if we have in the national title game 
something go down in the final minute that's not reviewable and it alters the game. Now, I can't say that Gonzaga would have won if they had seen Meeks' hand out of bounds, but to me that is quite clearly a perfect example where Gonzaga should have retained possession. And I'm aware that Gonzaga also got a break there because they had inbounded the ball. Was it Perkins's foot? Someone's foot was, was stepping over the line when they inbounded the ball. It was technically a violation. Gonzaga didn't get called for that either. So uh, we've talked about this on the podcast plenty before. I just think that there should be more things that are subject to quick, timed review. And something like Meeks's hand literally would not take more than 10 seconds to confirm. And it would have given more proper balance and fairness to the end of the game. I'm not convinced that that is going to happen. But obviously, it being such a big play, perhaps that will change. We do have a year. This is a a rule change year upcoming. So we will have different things coming to college basketball rule-wise next season. We'll get to that way down the road in the offseason when that stuff happens. Anyway, from the officiating standpoint, GP, that's my take on the game. We can get more on Carolina winning and Gonzaga losing if you want. But obviously, people are going to be listening to this to hear our takes on how the whistles were blown. It was frustrating, but I do want to emphasize, I don't think that the officials were brutally bad. I, I, far from it. it. It sucked that there was so much uh, inconsistency, but to be fair, I think a lot of the fouls that were called were legit fouls. You know, people say in boxing that you know, styles make fights, and uh, I feel like the, the, the matchup uh, was conducive to having a lot of fouls called. These are, these are two of the only teams in the country that – play basketball in a in a traditional way with two bigs throw it inside they've got attacking point guards like all of these things that lend itself to to having a lot of whistles so there are some questionable calls here and there uh, some of them on Zach Collins and the way he was limited to just 14 minutes um, before fouling out um, I, I think had a huge impact on the game particularly given how he played in the national semifinals and so I could take issue with a call here or a call there but I think once we knew we were going to have Carolina Gonzaga uh, we we probably should have known we were going to have a lot of whistles. Um, the missed calls are the ones that bother me the most. The Kennedy Meek situation. At the other end, you know, I can't remember which Gonzaga player, but somebody shoots an air ball. It's just clearly an air ball, just a horrendous shot. Refs huddle and say, oh, well, it was tipped. No, it wasn't. The replay shows it wasn't tipped. They give that ball back to Gonzaga, and then I think Nigel knocks down a three-pointer. If Gonzaga would have won, that yes. would have been a massive moment in that game um you know obviously gonzaga loses so it doesn't become uh the 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 focus of as much scrutiny as it otherwise would have been but i mean that's just like you can't like listen this is the last game of the year you're supposed to be three of the best officials in the sport you can't miss those things uh it's it, like i don't want to say it's unacceptable because i don't even know what that means like unacceptable meaning you won't accept it meaning we reject the outcome like what does unacceptable mean but it's like it's bad it's a bad look and what I hate more than anything about the way the title game went down, besides the fact that even with all the whistles um, and all the blown calls, there we seem to be heading for a last-second situation. And we didn't even get that because it's like uh, Carolina gets a bucket, goes up three, Nigel comes down, gets blocked, dunked the other way. Now it's a five-point game, then it's a turnover, then it's, a, it's like, whoa, what just happened? Like, I, I can't even remember a game, a high-stakes game, going from, okay, we're going down to the buzzer, to, oh, no, the game's over. Like, as quickly as that game went. It was a wild, like, before you even knew what had happened, the game was over. You know you know what I'm saying? Uh, speaking as someone who had to file at the buzzer, you know, and basically provide our company with anywhere between two and, two and 400 words on what had just happened, and then before I knew it, 
we it, what exactly what you're saying goes down. Like Meeks gets the block. It's a heck of a block. And Sports Illustrated's cover, if you have not seen it, it's it's a fantastic shot of Meeks blocking Williams Goss in the lower left hand corner, just in the in the in the perfect space. You can just see Fuse face. It's a great shot. Um, it's a great job by their photog there. But yeah, I mean, it all happened so fast, and I was like, uh, uh, because uh, I basically had two leads written. Basic, you know, if Gonzaga had been able to pull it out versus Carolina, describing the close ending, and then like, it's a six point difference. It was very weird, and we got a few, you know, after thirty six minutes worth of inconsistent play and really bad shooting, we got a few nice shots. I mean, Nigel was able to get some big plays, and he twists his ankle again, and he's, you know, he's just he's he's hobbling around there, and Barry hits a big three. Uh, weird you know, final two minutes, I guess. And I don't necessarily think that Williams Goss tweaking that ankle again was the thing that prevented Gonzaga from winning. Um, who really knows? I, I, it was, he clearly didn't, he underestimated Meeks's positioning uh, in taking that shot, which was, which was brutal. But yeah, it was, it was a weird game. Like, honestly, it was probably one of the five or six worst watches of a title game that I can remember and I can the first one that I can ever like truly remember sitting through start to finish and can clearly remember in my mind was Carolina over Michigan in 93 so basically in the past two and a half decades I think that was one of the five worst we've had just in terms of the watch like and and you know what sometimes we get that I'll trade this for getting a great game with an amazing finish last year like it's not just that Nova UNC ended on a buzzer beater that was a very well-played game only had like 36 fouls in it or something like that um so yeah i get i get it It, it's frustrating to have a season especially because both teams were so good and it's weird like carolina was what four for 26 or something a a four for 27 like abysmal three-point shooting uh and gonzaga held yet another opponent under 38 percent on the season uh because that's what they've done on the season basically so in another game carolina didn't shoot well all these things that if you looked at one team, you'd say, yeah, that team had to have lost. But because Gonzaga wasn't efficient from the floor either, Karnaski had one of the worst games of his career. Collins fouled out. Uh, and just to take you inside the locker room just a little bit, um, Gonzaga was not inconsolable or anything like that. Obviously, they're down. Anytime you, have a, you lose a title game, you're down. Collins was just, he was like, it was almost like I hate myself for what I did to myself tonight. Uh, that fifth foul was flat out stupid. Granted, he should have never even had a fifth foul in that spot because the one that he got his fourth on was just brutal. Um, he's establishing position. I don't think he jerks his elbow enough to warrant that call. Um, but ultimately, none of the players in Gonzaga's locker room blamed the officiating, and I thought it was well handled all around by few and the guys there. Um, a great season for Gonzaga, 37-2. and two. I wrote, and I firmly believe this, I mean, when you look at what Mark Few has done almost over two decades, the fact that he got Gonzaga to a title game with a one-loss season, he'll still be around for years to come. I think he'll clear the 600 win mark. Uh, To me, Mark Few doesn't need a title, and this is very rare, but he does not have a path that is matched by any other coach. Even even guys like Jim Boeheim and, and Jim Calhoun with what they did at those programs, consider the leagues that those programs were in, the opportunities that those programs have. Gonzaga is a very, very, very different thing. Um, Mark View is deserving of consideration for the Hall of Fame at this point in his career. I think that he will get there. I think that he is going to coach 
he, I think he's 50, he's 52 or 54. I think, I think he'll coach until he's at least 60. That'll, that'll vault him way past the 600 win mark. He might even flirt with 700. Um, who's to say if he'll get to another final four, cause they're promised to no one perish. But with what he's done to me in retrospect, I watched that game. It was ugly. And I thought, you know what? He took him to a title game. You can't really tell the story of college basketball now in America without Gonzaga. And 98% of that is Mark Few, essentially. And so to me, he is worthy of one day getting put in the hall. I agree, and I think he will be there. And it should be noted that you don't have to win a national championship to go to the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, Guy Lewis is in. Never He did go to five Final Fours, but he never won a national championship. Um, it's not a prerequisite to the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame. I think Mark Few... Uh, will be a Hall of Famer. What I was saying before was that um, I hated that we were robbed of a last-second situation because it looked like we were headed that direction, and then it was just gone. Like, whoa, what happened? Game's over. Um, so that that was disappointing. Uh, but the other thing I hated about it was, you know, we had two great teams playing, um, you know, two one-seeds, two teams that if you said really at any point in the season from, say, December 1st on, you know, name me eight teams that can win the national championship. They would have both, you know, been on most people's list, North Carolina and Gonzaga. And so it was all set up to be a great championship game. And then we get 44 fouls in 40 minutes, which we've discussed may or may not have been wrong or excessive, but it, 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 it was 44 in 40 minutes. And then I think even worse, 44 fouls in, in 46 field goals. And so there's a, a there's a, a, a section of sports fans who do not like college basketball. And, and when you ask them why, they say it's unwatchable. And when you ask them why, they say, well, the, the kids don't make shots and, and the officiating's horrible. I, I, or, you know, what they really mean when they say the kids don't make shots is they don't make shots like the pros, which, okay, you know, college quarterbacks don't make throws like Aaron Rodgers. You know, like and that never really comes up when it comes with college football. Like, I can't watch college football because, like, the players are so much worse than the NFL. Okay, sure. But, like, you never hear that. But you hear it all the time in college basketball. Um, and, and it is true. Like, if you go sit courtside at an NBA game one night and courtside in a college game one night, like, you'll want to put a gun in your head. Like, it's like, whoa. Because one sport, the, the ball usually goes in, and the other sport, it usually doesn't. Um, so, but those people tune in for the national championship game. You know, the NBA basically clears out the schedule. Uh, so there's nothing competing with it. So if you're watching sports, gambling on sports, anything on sports on that Monday night in April, you're probably going to be watching the, the national championship game. And when you have two brands like Carolina and Gonzaga, you're going to get a larger than normal audience. And it played into every stereotype those critics of college basketball have. Because what happened? The kids didn't make shots. And the officiating was, if not horrible, certainly questionable. And there were some big missed, missed calls in the final minutes. Carolina shoots 35.6% from the field, 14.8% from three-point range, and wins. Uh, Gonzaga shoots 33.9% uh, from the field and loses. So the most disappointing thing, I think, is that we had an opportunity to really have something nice. And instead, if you're one of those people who hates college basketball because – uh, you can't watch it because the players aren't aren't shot makers and the officiating is horrible. Well, there's certainly nothing that happened on Monday night that's going to make you change your mind, even if your mind maybe should change a little bit. Fair. Uh, those people aren't listening to this podcast, though. Um, and that just, listen, sometimes it happens. 
ultimately, I find that people will watch big events if they're simply compelling and close. Um, this one wasn't compelling. It was fairly close throughout, so it can be a frustrating watch. Um, but, you know, last year's title game would have gone against all of that. So, And the, and the sport itself is up. So in its biggest moment, it was a letdown. But points per game average is way up over the past two years, obviously, because we have a, now a 30-second 30 shot, 30 shot clock as opposed to 35 seconds. And just to give people an idea here, in this rule change year, as we talk about all this stuff, they are debating on widening the lane and they're debating on moving the three-point shot out because although it wasn't good shooting in that national title game, uh, three-point shooting still has not – moving the line back hasn't affected three-point shooting enough to where you know teams are being induced to kind of play inside more. So they're still debating on moving it back a little bit more. I think I'd be okay with that. I think the talent – Generally speaking, the the, I mean, the, the, NBA level, the, the result the result of moving the three point line back is never what people actually think it is. People say, "Wow, college players can't make three pointers." That does, you know, they they don't shoot well from the three point line. Why would you move it back? Because that's not the point. The point is to create more space. It just yeah. it, it creates spacing by moving. You move the three point line back, the shot making ability won't deteriorate nearly as much as the 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 advantages that come. Um, from from creating the space helps the game. So I'm all for that. Move it back. It creates driving lanes. It's better for the game. I agree. I, agree. I think that uh, they should basically move it back halfway between the current NBA line and the current college line. Get it right in between. I think that would be that would be perfect. Um, but, yeah, and, and real quick, GP on Carolina and Roy Williams. Uh, I was right in Gonzaga, so I actually I did not go in the winning locker room. Um it's it's wild that I, I tweeted this out. I mean, I was waiting for a plane. I had a just a travel nightmare disaster on Tuesday, and uh, my plane got delayed. So as we're waiting, I'm trying to get some work done. And this guy, he's like, got to be like 50 years old. He's talking to two of his other friends, and he goes, "Yeah, great win. You know, I'm still I'm still under impressed or underwhelmed or whatever he said by by War Roy Williams. That team won it." last night on their own. Barry got it done. Meeks got it done. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, this is a real thing still. I cannot believe this is... I'm listening to a, a white-haired dude in his early 50s talk about how he's under-impressed by Roy Williams. What are we even talking about? What are we even doing here? Guys won three national titles, only one of six to do it. Our buddy Rob Doster had a really nice piece in the middle of all this Final Four coverage and basically had, had, had written out and showed why... Because Roy Williams coaches his team so well, kind of behind the scenes, in practices, in preseasons, throughout the season leading up to the biggest games, um, one of the criticisms of Williams is that he almost just lets his guys roll out the ball and play. But because they're so well trained and so able, and because he's been able to keep his guys old, and because UNC hasn't lost anyone to transfer in six seasons, they can operate on the floor more in terms of how an NBA team would operate in terms of having trust amongst your guys and not overcoaching. It's one of the things that I really love about Roy Williams. And the fact that he has three, he now has more than Dean Smith, his mentor, obviously. It's uh, it's an incredible accomplishment. And it, in the big picture, I did not think Carolina was going to win it. I was actually a seller on UNC this year in terms of being a top five team in America. I will eat the crow. I'll say I was wrong, no doubt about it. Um, I, this isn't like a top five all-time Carolina team, in my opinion, but they got it done. And 
the Roy Williams critics, and I remember you writing something, getting some like, who's who's criticizing? No, they're still out there. It is insane. Well, I, I, so when I write when I write that, I got like Doug Gottlieb was among those. Like, come on, GP, he's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I know, but you ask people for the name of the best uh, college coaches in America, and Roy's name almost never comes up, almost never. And I was hoping that because I believed it should, uh, this championship would would eliminate a lot of that. Because in 2005, the truth is he did have the best team. He had six guys on that team who went on to play in the NBA. 2009, seven guys on that team went on to play in the NBA. In 2009, they got all 72 first-place AP votes in the preseason. They were the number one overall seed. They were supposed to win it in November. They were supposed to win it on Selection Sunday. They actually did win it, which always made it hilarious for me. Uh, when Tyler Hansborough afterward is you know, doing his press conference stuff on the court and says, you know, uh, nobody believed in us. Like, what? Everybody believes in you. What are you talking about? You ever, like Literally every AP voter voted for you in the preseason. You're the number one overall seed. Like nobody thought we could do this. D- dude, everybody thought you could do this. And so if you wanted to go 2005, 2009, look at Roy Williams' uh, championships and say, yeah, but, like, who couldn't have won a championship with that roster and that roster? I got you. This roster, different deal. Past four recruiting classes, all been ranked outside of the top four. So fifth or lower in the ACC, not the nation, in the ACC. Hasn't had a top four recruiting class in the ACC in any of the past four years. How many pros are on this team? Maybe three. I mean, Justin Jackson, maybe. I think, clearly. Tony Bradley, probably. Yeah. Uh, Theo Pinson, maybe. But, like, maybe yeah. three pros. Zero preseason AP votes, first place. So they weren't even supposed to win the ACC, much less the national championship. So this championship is not a result or byproduct of Roy Williams recruiting pros or having pros. This is a byproduct of Roy Williams recruiting, yes, talented players. You don't go to North Carolina unless you're talented. But development and coaching, that's, what, that's how this North Carolina team became what it was, what it is. Joel Berry getting better. Kennedy Meeks getting better. Justin Jackson getting better. Justin Jackson, uh, last November I saw him. I was with some NBA people. They were like, he's a good prospect, but he's not a good player. This year he was an awesome player. Roy and his staff deserve some credit for that. And so uh, all, there's all sorts of ways to measure him that suggest he's one of the all-time greats. Not just a Hall of Famer, but one you know on a short list of the best to ever do it. You know, Now one of only six men with at least three national championships – uh, one of only, I think, four men with nine Final Fours. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this championship, uh, this one was different. He developed this one and coached this one. And that's why it's just maddening when you bump into that man in the airport. A North Carolina fan who's still unsure about Roy Williams. Like, if you're still unsure about Roy Williams, you are just not paying attention. Yeah, I just almost wonder if people are just overly, bizarrely cynical. And that speaks more to their worldview than their thoughts specifically on Roy Williams and North Carolina basketball. Because... It's it's even more ludicrous than the people that want to downplay Bill Self and what he's done at Kansas because they're looking only at the prism through um, Kansas's inconsistencies in Elite Eight games or or in you know in lack of Final Four appearances. But Roy has done enough at this point that he needs to be called a top five coach in college basketball. He's been around too long. He's had too many successful seasons. He's coaching. The title game was his 100th NCAA tournament game. And so if I were making the list off the top of my head, best coaches, I would say 
Shashevsky, this is no order, but Shashevsky, Cal, Roy, um, top five is not an easy thing. Uh, self is, and then, uh, honestly, I'd probably, I'd probably put Patino five, and that's both acumen, accomplishment, recruiting ability. That's kind of throwing everything together. I think those would be the top five. No coincidence, all five. It's it's even hard to leave Izzo out of that, you know. No coincidence, all of those five are Hall of Famers. So, um, yeah, it's just it's wild that Williams continues to have this amount of skepticism. Uh, uh, hopefully, it, it, it's mostly gone. But uh, but yeah, and then in general, GP as we kind of turn, I know we're gonna hit on a few other topics. Real quick on the season, um, I thought it was a fantastic season. You know, tournament ratings were up, generally speaking. Now, the title game and the Final Four were always going to be up because they were on CBS this year. They were on TBS last year. It's a network year. of stars. It's America's most-watched network. That is absolutely correct. And they would have been even better had the game been better. You know, there does reach a certain point where, the, where it was low-scoring and there was too many fouls. If this had been an 84-81 game, I, I think the ratings would have been astronomically good. But overall, this season... With the with the depth and quality and watchability of the freshman class, with the fact that almost every single blue blood was was really really good and consistently in the top ten and the top fifteen in the rankings, uh, to me it seemed like as as though the general conversation around college basketball was a fairly positive one. Um, I would qualify this as a really really solid year. In fact, I think it will be tough for the sport next year to have a a better year, in part because to me, heading into this season, there's no, never any sure thing, so to speak, GP. But it just it seemed a lot more reliable in regard to the best teams, the players, the freshmen that we knew were going to be really, really good. Um, now we weren't sure who the All America, you know, the the Player of the Year would be, and all that stuff. That was kind of a little bit of a surprise, and that was a lot of fun to track and all that. But I would qualify this to me is probably even though the final game isn't great um on the whole i'd say it was one of the best seasons the past six or seven years overall i i I felt it was a really good year and would and will help kind of start next season hopefully keep some momentum over coming over because i'm not i'm not convinced that next year's freshman class is going to be outrageously good and then as we kind of put together our top 25 which i know we're going to get to um I don't have a ton of conviction about the about the team we have number one, and there are even a couple of teams in the top ten where if you told me those teams would struggle to even get a five or six seed next year, I would totally believe you. Well, let's talk about the top twenty-five and one now. So we published it on Monday night after the national title game, and I consulted with with you and with Cal Boone and with Chip Patterson and talked to coaches, and 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 this is the the result. I will say this is one of the, and we've been doing this for a long time. And I saw something on Deadspin where they say it's just totally useless. It's actually not. Like, go back and look at the the top twenty five and one we posted April, you know, two thousand sixteen or April two thousand fifteen. They are remarkably good, given that we don't even know in many ways what the rosters are going to look like. They're remarkably good at mostly 
you know, painting a picture or providing a picture of what the subsequent college basketball season is going to look like. Like, you know, I I don't have it in front of me, but I'm, you know, this time last year, we knew Gonzaga was going to be good. We knew North Carolina was going to be good. We knew Oregon was going to be good. South Carolina thing, that came out of nowhere, but let's be honest, that came out of nowhere relative to Selection Sunday. Uh, but but by and large, the teams that are supposed to be good um, aren't, aren't that difficult to identify, even on the first Monday night in April. So I sort of reject the idea that they're not worth anything. And Ken Pomeroy has done something, that, that a study that shows – that preseason polls, the ones where we actually do know who's going to be on the roster and who's not going to be on the roster, you know, the ones that are done in October, November, they're remarkably good at shaping, um, you know, of providing a, a a glimpse of of what this college basketball season is going to provide. There are always surprises, uh, teams that weren't supposed to be good that are, and teams that uh, are supposed to be good that aren't. But by and large, you know, uh, it, it does provide a pretty good, you know, a pretty accurate. Uh, painting of of what of what's to come that said in this particular one i kept looking at the rosters and the projections and and i was like okay who's number one and i really don't feel strongly about anybody i i could have made a case for about four or five different teams to be number one i ultimately decided to go with kansas and here here would be my argument they lose frank mason and landon lucas obviously they're gonna lose josh jackson i obviously um, although he hasn't made it official yet. But if they bring back Devontae Graham and they bring back LeGerald Vick, you have two experienced, established guards, both of whom can be primary ball handlers. It's not unlike what they had this year. Now, I'm not saying either one of those guys is going to be you know, Frank Mason player of the year, but to have experienced, established, proven guards is a really important thing in college basketball. So you got that. Sfee's back. And I know he might not have ever been what people expected him to be, but he's a pretty good college basketball player. Um, as long as Carlton Bragg doesn't transfer, he's back. Uh, Yudoka Azabuki, who was starting for them at one point, is back. And then you enroll Billy Preston, a five-star forward. You get Malik Newman, who was a five-star top ten national recruit coming out of high school, went to Mississippi State for a year, wasn't great, transferred to Kansas. And uh, Sam Cunliffe, the Arizona State transfer. So you, if Malik Newman can be anything close to what he was supposed to be coming out of high school and what will be his actual junior year of college, um, and Graham and Vic are as solid as they've been, and Azabuki and Preston are two other five-star, you know, uh, front court players, and Svee is Svee like that's a pretty good team. Like, I mean, that, that, to me, that makes yeah. as much sense as anybody else. Now, if Donovan Mitchell were to come back to Louisville, you could make an argument for Donovan for Louisville. Yes. Um, you know, if if Alonzo Trier, Raleigh Hawkins both come back, uh, Chance Comanche comes back, if, if all the Arizona guys, except for the ones who have already announced they're not coming back, come back, you could make an argument for them. But there's no clear-cut, clear-cut favorite for number one. But I think Kansas makes as much sense as anybody. Yeah, I, for those listening and those who – obviously, I would think if uh, – GP's going to link his top 25 in our podcast post on the site or on the app. And um, it's inevitable that the rankings will change sure. in the next three weeks just because we're going to have people come back or people leave. I'm of the impression that it's no sure thing that Bragg comes back. That's I'm my understanding as well. That, That's why I mentioned yep, it. I'm of the impression that it's no sure thing that Trier comes back for Arizona. There's actually a number of guys here. 
be very interesting. Uh, as we record this podcast, Isaiah Briscoe is leaving Kentucky. Uh, I don't like that call, but you could very easily say, listen, Briscoe's role doesn't necessarily get any better on Kentucky next year, and then he gets a year older. I just personally, I don't see how Isaiah Briscoe is an NBA talent at this point, and if he gets drafted, I don't see him staying in the league. Kentucky would have well. Let me let me say on Briscoe real by quick. having him back. I'm not saying that he would, and there's no there's no saying that he couldn't have gotten better. By the way, GP, but just that's that's one. Kentucky's what seventh or eighth in our rankings. Right. Uh, to me, losing him is is something that should hurt the Wildcats, in my opinion. Well, yeah. I mean, listen. Whatever you think of him as an NBA prospect, he's a good college player, and uh, you know, try naming the teams that have been totally reliant on first year players, freshmen that have. You know, like been awesome and won national championships. Like 2012, Kentucky wasn't totally reliant on first-year players. 2015, Kentucky wasn't obviously. Um, 2015, Duke wasn't. You know, people forget Quinn Cook. Like having that that veteran guy who's been through it is a huge advantage, even when you are supremely talented with first-year players. And so, I don't think it's a good thing that Kentucky loses Isaiah Briscoe. But if you're Isaiah Briscoe, the truth is. And I've said this for a while, and Kentucky people get mad at me. I believe it to be true. If you're going to go to uh, go to Kentucky, you better get in and get out. Otherwise, you're stuck because they're going to bring in somebody better than you every year. Because by definition, if you haven't been able to get in and out, you can drop a that's what she said whenever you want to. If you, if you aren't able to get in to Kentucky and out of Kentucky within a year or two, it means that you haven't lived up to expectations. And that means that somebody better than you is coming is about to enroll, and you just get stuck in a in a bad cycle. Um, and so you, you, there's probably no scenario where Isaiah Briscoe improves his draft stock, even if his draft stock isn't good right now. So if you are comfortable, and I'm sure he is, because he seems like a bright guy. Um, if you're comfortable knowing, hey, you're not going to be a first round pick, might not be a second round pick, but and, and probably end up in the D League. But if you're just ready to get on with your professional career, in whatever form that is then sure, go ahead. This makes sense to me. I'm not, I, I hate it when, and it's college basketball writers mostly who do this, or, or dumb fans. And they say, oh yeah, what is this kid doing? He's making a mistake. What is the mistake? The, 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 Isaiah Briscoe going to be making more money next year than your average college graduate playing basketball. And if it goes really well, he'll, he'll figure out a way to make a roster. You don't have to get drafted to be on an NBA roster. Fred Van Vliet didn't get drafted. Ron Baker didn't get drafted. Wayne Seldon's on the Memphis Grizzlies right now. He came up through the D League. Um, uh, Troy Williams didn't get drafted. He's on the Houston Rockets right now, about to be a three seed in the Western Conference playoffs. Uh, and and you know what? Like, and, and if it doesn't go that way for you, okay, you're in the D League. Maybe, but at least you're getting on with your professional career. Like the idea. Uh, this is the part that drives me crazy. There's this constant belief that if you come back to school, you'll get better. And if you come back to school, you'll you'll develop into a lottery pick. It's just not true in lots of cases. No, it, it does happen occasionally. It does happen occasionally. It does happen occasionally. Josh Hart came back to school and he got better. Buddy Hill came back to school and he got better. But for every Josh Hart and Buddy Hill, I can name you 50 guys who came back to school and didn't really get better and didn't really improve their stock. And so I never – like. I don't. I don't ever judge a young person's decision on this, because if there, if there's somebody who is well enough known for us to talk about them, there's somebody who's going to have a professional career playing basketball in some form a year from today. And so, like, what is the harm in that? Like, if you if you are just tired, if you if you are either tired of school or don't think college basketball is going to benefit you 
in any way that you want it to benefit you, then I have no issue with you getting, getting on with it. And so I have no issue with Isaiah Briscoe getting on with it. I wish him all the luck. Yeah. I'll kind of an opposite decision to that. And maybe I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten it better at all. But like, I don't know what Kobe Simmons is doing leaving Arizona to go to the NBA. Right. I mean, I guess he'll get drafted on talent. That dude, I mean, he was barely a factor for Arizona. Like, it's just interesting to see every year. And, you know, maybe he proves me wrong, but a lot of people are sellers on Simmons and have been, generally speaking, since um, his prep days, because he got he was considered, you know, one of the guys in that freshman point guard class. There were basically like six of them. But Kobe Simmons didn't name didn't get brought up this year with Lonzo and Markel and, and Dennis and Fox and all that. So that was I'm not surprising because I suspect that he was going to go. Um, but that's just a, that's kind of kind of like a different deal than Briscoe, who's leaving and probably can't get any better. Simmons is going totally on on potential after not proving anything. Uh, real quick, we've got Wichita State fifth. Right, that is legit. I think um, they lose nobody. No, it's and and Shamit has turned into a legit NBA prospect. That's the, he's their best player. But that team is going to be. Really, really good. Um, they will probably not be in the Valley because uh, they're heading to the American. By all accounts, they're going to do this this year and play in the American next year, uh, which is interesting, I guess. I kind of hate it for the Valley, honestly. They lose Creighton three years ago. Now they lose Wichita State. Those are the two flagship programs of that conference. Um, but because of Wichita State's move to the American and because it will have more opportunities Purely because the American will, with the inclusion of Wichita State, should be at minimum a three-bid league, I would think. I would think. Um, a higher-profile season for the Shockers next year. I have no issue with Wichita State at number five. That just might be something that catches some people off guard. They lose nobody, and they rate it as a top-ten team right. this season. Now, so and, no, reason no reason. And uh, listen, I'm, I'm personally happy. I hate it. I love Doug Elgin, and I, hate, I love the Missouri Valley, and I love that event. You know, I've I've gone to some of those games. I've worked that tournament. I hate seeing this happen to them. On a personal level, it's gonna. You know, I live in Memphis, so having uh, Wichita State in the same league as the University of Memphis is a cool thing. It provides a another quality game for the Tigers. Um, but more than that, for Wichita State, it provides some um, some cushion. Like basically, what we've learned over the past few years is that if Wichita State is perfect, and I mean literally perfect, undefeated, they can get a one seed or a high seed. But short of that, like lose a couple games here and there, you just like you're on the risk of not even making the damn thing. And you can be top ten Kimpom, but only get a ten seed. And so if you're Greg Marshall, you go, "How man, it's going to be awesome to be able to finish third in your league and still make the NCAA tournament, not even have to worry about it," which is going to be the case for them in the, in the American. And then they get. I mean, they're going to have UConn coming into Wichita. They're going to have um, Cincinnati coming into Wichita, Memphis coming into Wichita, brands unlike they've been able to get. And so this is, I, I think it makes sense from the American. And I've heard, like some people say, oh, well, yeah, but what happens when Greg Marshall leaves? Then the American's going to be stuck with Wichita. Dude, the American's got East Carolina and Tulane. <laughs> like, what do you mean stuck it's with Wichita? Yeah, like what, yeah are you talk- like, what are you talking about? Like, okay. Tulane. Yeah, like, yeah, like, seriously. Like, there's no, like, as long as you've got East Carolina in your league, Wichita State ain't going to be the drag you down situation, you know? So, like, oh, yeah. it'll be awesome as long as they have Greg there. 
which might, by the way, just be forever at this point because now he's in a league that you can – like it's a multi-bid league. It's got an ESPN contract. So, you know, they're going to be playing games every – like the AAC schedule is typically like on Thursday-Saturday schedule or Thursday-Sunday schedule. So they're going to be playing like on ESPN2, ESPN, ESPN News, ESPNU, like twice a week, every week. Like that, it just raises the whole prof- profile of everything. So uh, Greg might not leave now. But even if he does, it's still Wichita State. Okay, fine. Greg Marshall is no longer the coach at Wichita State in a year for whatever reason. Guess who is now? Steve Forbes. They'll be and as long as the administration is still you know supporting it the way that it supports it, then they'll be fine. So the, the, Wichita State, whether if Greg Marshall died tomorrow, Wichita State's never going to be the worst basketball program in the American. So that's why I think it's smart for the American. I think it's good for for Wichita. I hate it for the Missouri Valley Conference, but. You know, what are you going to do? This is the nature of college athletics in the year 2017. The top 10, we'll run through it real quick, and we don't have to comment on this because there's a larger issue that I want to get to. The top 10 is this. Kansas, Arizona, North Carolina's three, Louisville four, Wichita State five, Michigan State six, Duke seven, Kentucky eight, Baylor nine, and Florida 10. Obviously, Baylor, that's reliant on Jonathan Motley coming back. That's totally up in the air. Florida, reliant on Devin Robinson coming back. That's totally up in the air. Um, so on and so forth. Do, do you know, because I have refused to get into any sort of Twitter debate or Twitter defense or Facebook defense, just because honestly, since the moment I've got home, I've been sick. I've got the flu. I don't know if you can tell by the way I sound, but I've been really, really out of it the past couple of days. Just awful. Um, and I, so I've got no energy to, to argue about this, but I also find it uh, it doesn't benefit anybody to get into these hypothetical back and forths on Twitter. Um, but there has been a lot of criticism about one school as it relates to the top 25 and one. Do you Are you aware of what it is? Are they in the top 10 or no? No, they're not listed. That's the problem. Um, hmm, let me try and genuinely guess this here. Uh, let's see. Nova, USC, Gonzaga, Notre Dame, Minnesota, Miami, Northwestern, Cincy, Butler, Alabama, UCLA, West Virginia, St. Mary's, Purdue, Xavier, Oregon. Who's not in the top twenty-five and one? There's one school that's not in here, and everybody says, "Are you an idiot? Did you not even watch the NCAA tournament?" Oh my gosh! Who? Okay. Uh, Did you not even notice who went to the Final Four? South Carolina. South Carolina. Really? Oh, South Carolina. Dude, Car- they it- lose. The second best player in program history to shout out to Devin Downey. Shout out like, to what? Devin Downey. And by the way, I was listen. I nobody loved the Cinderius Thornwell. Story more than I love the Cinderia Stonewell story. He was awesome. I fought for him to be a CBS Sports first team All American. Norlander, admit it. You didn't agree with me, and actually, you like it, it was totally debatable. It wasn't like you're crazy not yeah, to agree with me. I just said Williams Goss, right? Yes, yeah, so, which is totally yeah. reasonable. But like, I fought for Cinderia Stonewell. But knock it off with this whole greatest player in program history. Like, unless Devin Downey disappears, let's stop. Like, knock it off. There's a way to compliment Cinderia Stonewell without taking the name of the great Devin Downey and burying it into the ground. That was wrong. What happened during this NCAA tournament run? You respect Devin Downey. Shout out to Devin Downey and shout out to Chester, South Carolina. Shout out to Terry Teagle. Um, but they did loosen areas. Thornwell. And here's the other thing. Cause this is the argument that I hear from South Carolina fans and not, it's even like South Carolina fans, like media people who I like are, am friendly with. Like they're the ones caught the calling me out. I'm like, yo man, I thought we were good. Like you, you're, you're the one doing this. Um, they weren't really a top 25 team this year. 
They made the right. Final Four. That's true. But was South Carolina a top 25 team this year? Not in the preseason AP poll. Not in the uh, pre- not in the AP poll that came out the day after Selection Sunday. Got zero votes in that one. So we watched basketball for four months. And really, I mean, there was moments in there where South Carolina was ranked. I get it. But, like, after after everything had been played up until the NCAA tournament, literally no AP voter thought South Carolina was a, uh, a top 25 team. Not one. They didn't get one vote. And then they got hot and give them credit and hang the banner. But but that's a team that didn't look for four over a four-month stretch, didn't look like a top 25 team. And then they lose Cinderius Thornwell. And by the way, go look at the games they had to play without Cinderius Thornwell when he was suspended. Like, didn't go so well. And I know they got a transfer from Delaware, and congratulations on the transfer from Delaware. Shout out to, shout out to the Blue Hens. Yeah. yeah, like, I'm not even trying to, like, he might be great. I don't know. But my point is, so often people go, that's a Final Four team that returns three starters. And now, well, okay, that what you're saying is true. But they weren't one of the four best teams in the country. They weren't one of the eight best teams in the country. They weren't one of the 16 best teams in the country. And it is very debatable whether they were one of the top 25 teams in the country. Even after that incredible run through the NCAA tournament, they still ranked 25th at Ken Palm, which is, which is top 25. I'll give you that. But you take a team that ranked 25th at Ken Palm after an unpredictable run, aided by uncharacteristically hot shooting and other things, and you take the best player off of that team, and you don't like enroll a top five recruiting class or something like that. Are we again? There are other people who have like our buddy John Rostein. He's got South Carolina like twenty fifth. That's fine. You can reasonably have them twenty fifth. I'm not arguing against South Carolina. I just don't think it's insane to not have South Carolina. That's my only point. And I mean that with all due respect to um, Frank Martin, PJ Dozier, Cinderius Thornwell, and, and Devin Downey. I wouldn't have South Carolina ranked. Um, I wonder here. Just a few quick lingering thoughts here. You can uh, respond if you want, or we can move on after that. Um, generally, generally curious about what Duke will be. Um, you have Grayson Allen expected to return. If I'm Grayson Allen, I don't come back. Uh, but if he comes back, Duke's got to be a preseason top ten team. If he does not, I mean, Marquis Bolden and Frank Jackson are the only guys coming back who got minutes and Jackson's the only one who got significant minutes. Um, Wendell Carter is going to be awesome. Gary Trent's going to be awesome. And Duke's still going to get another big time recruit before this is done. Uh, there's still some big names on the board. I, I just don't have any idea what to expect with Duke next year. Villanova, I could see playing itself into being a top five team again. Um, I think Jalen Brunson's got a really good shot at being a first team all American next year. We'll see what happens there. Everyone's sleeping on USC just generally speaking, like we have them 12th, they should be. USC should be really good next year if Benny Boatwright opts to return. Um, just keep an eye on that team. I think it, it could have a very good chance of actually winning the Pac-12. Gonzaga is going to be really good again, even though they're losing guys. If Williams Goss comes back, that's obviously just a huge key. I would love to see him return. I would basically fight for him to be our preseason All-America Player of the Year, I would think. Uh, we'll see when we get to October. But right now, he would probably be my pick. Um, Minnesota should be good again. We've got him top 15. I understand that that's not a program that's been relevant and ranked in the past decade, but they were obviously ranked this year and were really good. They're bringing bring back so much. Miami, we might even have too low. Um, I think Jim Laranaga is going to have an awesome Miami team next year. 
keep an eye on them. It's bizarre to see teams like Minnesota and Northwestern in the preseason top 20, but they're both legitimately there. Cincinnati will, will be awesome again as well. And then last uh, thought here is that we have Alabama 20th, and I'm not going to fight that, but I'm, I got to see it. It's almost like, because they got guys coming in, um, and a lot of them, and Colin Sexton's going to be an awesome player, uh, five-star guy. I think that he can be a top five freshman in the country next year. But I almost wonder if the SEC might have two top five freshmen in America and will wind up playing on teams that just aren't major national factors. Obviously, Michael Porter Jr. at Missouri. I don't think Missouri is going to get to the tournament next year. And then Bama should. Um, I'm just that, That's the one team we have in our top 25, and I probably would have put them there too. I, I just wouldn't be shocked if, uh, if things went just a tad sideways with that team. Let's just see if they can do it with all those expectations. Those are my my lingering top 25 and one way too early thoughts. But uh, overall, yeah, things are going to be certainly different in college basketball heading into next year because we've got a lot of turnover coming. We mentioned about 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, that it was possible Carlton Bragg would transfer. I had heard that. Um, it is now official. Carlton Bragg is going to transfer. That news just now <laughs> okay. breaking. And so Carlton Bragg is out at Kansas. He's been a little bit of a problem or a lot of a problem for them uh, over the past year. So he is out. And I really don't think that hurts them that much. Like, I really don't it's think it's... That's just too funny that it happened in the middle of the podcast. That, um, um, I, I would say some teams I felt bad leaving off. Not bad, but like I also considered uh, Virginia Tech, South Carolina, uh, Nevada, Rhode yeah. Island, uh, those are all teams that could reasonably be placed uh, in a top 25 uh, and one. We mentioned Carlton Bragg transferring. That uh, segues perfectly into what was, I think, the big story in college basketball yesterday, and that's that uh, the Lawson brothers, Diedrich and K.J. Lawson, are both transferring from the University of Memphis. They become two of the most sought-after transfers on the transfer market, Diedrich especially. Uh, it's not a surprise that Diedrich didn't come back to Memphis. I think most people assumed he would just, like Isaiah Briscoe, get on with his professional career in whatever form that is. Um, instead, he and his brother announced that they are transferring. And Diedrich averaged like – Diedrich had one of the great statistical college basketball seasons in history last year. He just did it for a bad team, so nobody really paid attention. But he was awesome. And uh, his brother was pretty good too. Like Diedrich – I'm trying to call up the numbers now – well, he was he was solid as he got much more efficient this past season, but he is actually statistically, if you just look at like the raw data GP, he has been one of the most predominant statistical players in college basketball two years in a row. Oh sure, like he was on pace to if he would have played four years of college, he would have broken every one of Keith Lee's record. He would have been the all-time leading scorer and rebounder in University of Memphis history. Diedrich averaged 19.2 points, 9.9 rebounds, 3.3 assists, 1.3 steals, and 2.1 blocks per game last year. KJ, his older brother, um, averaged 12.3 points and 8.1 rebounds per game last season. Uh, they're not necessarily going to transfer to the same school, although that seems more likely than not. You don't have to necessarily hire the father, Keelan Lawson, to get them because Keelan, of course, has been on staff at the University of Memphis. That was part of the deal, hired by Josh Pastner. And I know this isn't a big store nationally, but it is it is the story uh, in, in Memphis because people have turned on Tubby Smith really, really drastically. Um, and I swear, like I like Tubby Smith. He's a good coach and a gentleman. 
I think he screwed this thing up incredibly. And here's why. Everybody made it out like, oh, it's going to be tough. you got to inherit the Keelan Lawson situation. When in reality, it should have been, this is great. I get to inherit the Keelan Lawson situation when you become the next Memphis coach. And here's why. You inherit Keelan. He's, he's the father of your two play, best players. He also, and I don't know if like I, people in Memphis know this. I don't know if the casual college basketball fan understands this. Diedrich Lawson was a McDonald's All-American. K.J. Lawson was a top 50 national recruit. They're both double-digit scores at the high major level, proven, already done it. There's a, another brother named Chandler Lawson who's a top 20 recruit in the class of 2019. National recruit, top 20. So he's a projected McDonald's All-American. There's another brother, Jonathan Lawson, who's a top 10 national recruit in the class of 2021. And then their cousin is a kid named DJ Jeffries, who's a top 10 national recruit in the class of 2019. So Keelan Lawson is literally related to the two best players at the University of Memphis, plus three future McDonald's All-Americans. And Tubby Smith came in and demoted him and put him in a corner and treated him like an idiot. And Keelan just got tired of it and just said, you know what? I don't need this. I can go back and be a high school coach. You know, if you're not going to respect me, you're not going to respect my children, then we'll just get out of here. And so it leads to them now losing their best two players. They're probably also going to lose Markel Crawford. If Markel leaves, which I'm told he's going to, Memphis will only have three players returning from this past year's team. And they've recruited nobody. Like recruiting is as poor as it's ever been in my lifetime. I'm 40 years old. Memphis basketball recruiting has never gone worse than it's going right now. And so it's just remarkable that the University of Memphis literally paid Josh Pastor $1.25 million to go away. Please take the Georgia Tech job. And then they gave Tubby Smith a five-year, $15.45 million contract. And he has, in a year, run the program straight into the ground. And mostly by being stubborn. Because all you had to do was keep Keelan Lawson in his position, keep him happy. And not only do you get... Diedrich and KJ, probably for another year. Because, by the way, by definition, they're, they weren't going to be pros. They're willing to sit out a year just to get out of Memphis. So you'd have had them next year. And then Chandler Lawson would have been on his way. DJ Jeffries would have been on his way. Jonathan Lawson would have been on his way. And you'd have got this thing rolling. Now, I, I doubt Tubby Smith lasts more than three years. It's just an incredible miscalculation. Um, like, why? The number one priority of Becoming the Memphis coach when Tubby Smith became the Memphis coach should have been keeping Keelan Lawson happy. And instead they demoted him. And for what? To put a staff together? You ready for this? That had never, there's not a person on Tubby Smith's staff who has ever signed as many top 50 players as Keelan Lawson had already brought to the University of Memphis in their whole careers combined. They've never done what Keelan Lawson has already done. As long as you think being an assistant coach is mostly rooted in being a player getter, there ain't no coach on the, that was on the staff at Memphis better at that than Keelan Lawson. And that's the guy you demote? Come on. And so it's a total mess. Uh, I mean, I might end up, I, I might end up being way wrong on Tubby because I was not – I mean, I, I would have graded the Tubby higher a B last year. I remember us talking about it. Uh, I remember saying – that I thought hiring Tubby Smith essentially gave Memphis a better future than Pastner would have been at that time. And I thought Tubby was a six or seven year higher, would have gotten to the tournament three out of six years, four out of seven years, and that would have been it. But 
I also didn't think that the Lawson situation would just flip like this. Obviously, that's uh, I mean, it's just massively damaging here. And I didn't realize, GP, that they would only have three guys coming back. And so if that if that is true, I mean, if that is true, you're going to be looking at. All right. They didn't go this year. They didn't go past last year. I don't know if they went in. 20. I don't think they went to the tournament. They didn't go. They didn't go in Pastors last two years. They didn't go this year. Okay. They're about to miss the NCAA tournament for the fourth straight year at a minimum. At a minimum, four straight years. That is something. Uh, I mean, did it happen in the '90s? GP. When was the last time Memphis went four straight years without to, without getting to the tournament? It it, like, actually, it actually happened. It's not as as long back. It's it's basically the last year of Larry Finch, first year of Tick Price. Year of Johnny Jones, year of John Calipari. I mean, okay. so it, it yep. happened then. Um, but I will say this: this is probably going to be the worst Memphis basketball team in my lifetime. Man, yeah, yeah. Uh, so okay, if, so last year Finch yeah, they right, missed. Though, but if it, GP, if it goes real south, like if it goes south, south, like if they're like a twelve-win team next season, and then Tubby can't get above five hundred in year three. You're gonna have to punt. That's you're over. gonna have to, and you're gonna have to start over. And then it just look, it just makes the Pastner thing look all the, all the worse. Particularly if Pastner can even just keep a neck above water and get to the tournament in the AC, in, in in the ACC, and and not even win a game. If he just gets Georgia Tech to the tournament, it even makes you look even worse. Well, I, I guess there's a, a few different ways to look at this. Some people look at it and say, "See, they were wrong to get rid of Josh Pastner," and I don't actually believe that. I think it was stupid to pay Josh Pastner to um, $1.25 million to leave because he was leaving anyway. Like he, it was, like he was a year away from getting fired at Memphis or you can get a brand new five-year deal at an ACC school with some history. Like it, for, for the, in, the, in the spirit of career longevity, Josh Pastner had to take Georgia Tech. So Memphis didn't need to pay him $1.25 million to take Georgia Tech. That was just stupid. Like the people who in that administration that made that decision, like they just, I mean, it's not my money. It's just some rich guy's money. So what do I care? But it was unnecessary. You didn't have to pay him $1.25 million. Um, so I don't believe, but, but I did, you know, I could, I, I understood the state of the program and where it was and how fans had already turned on Josh. They had turned on Josh a lot like Indiana fans had turned on Tom Crean. Sometimes it's better. You get to a point where it's just time to split up. And both parties can benefit. And I, I genuinely believed that with Memphis and Josh Pastner last year. Like, Josh going to Georgia Tech was going to be good for Josh, and it was probably going to be good for the University of Memphis. But with the benefit of hindsight, given the hire that they made, this is true. Um, and it doesn't mean they should have kept Josh Pastner. It just means what I'm saying is true. If Josh would have never gone to Georgia Tech, for whatever reason, maybe Chris Holtman takes Georgia Tech instead, or Bryce Drew takes it instead, or any of the number of guys they offered it to before it fell to Josh. If, if Josh just gets stuck at Memphis, Memphis basketball would be better off right now than it, than it is right now. And the reason is because... You can't, can't argue otherwise. Right, they would, it, they, oddly, if they'd have just got stuck with Josh Pastner, they'd be in a better spot right now than they are right now. And here's why. They would have had Charlie Moore kid that was committed to come to Memphis, got a release after Josh went to Georgia Tech and ended up going to Cal, averaged like 12 points a game for a team that was one win away from going to the NCAA tournament. And Nick Marshall, a former top 100 recruit who just left the program, Josh would have never left, let him leave the program. Like Tubby was almost like, I don't care, do whatever you want to do, where Josh would have under, Josh would have done everything he had to do to keep the kid. So you start lineup last this past season would have been Charlie Moore, Markel Crawford, K.J. Lawson, Diedrich Lawson, and Nick Marshall. I don't know if that team would have made the tournament, but it is five former top 100 recruits. It would have been solid. 
And then recruiting couldn't possibly have gone worse, if only because, like, this is the worst recruiting in the history of Memphis basketball in my lifetime. Um, and you wouldn't be tied up to a coach who's still got four years and $12 million left on his contract. So, um, and, and you'd still have Dedrick and KJ on campus right now. And Markel Crawford, too. So it's just like, what? Like it, so it's just, they just messed up the hire. I mean, that's what it looks like. Just the, and I understood like not being able to get Greg Marshall, not being able to get Buzz Williams, but when they were committed to paying $3 million a year, dude, go hire Chris Holtman from Butler. And I know that Chris is a better fit at Butler than Memphis, but for $3 million a year, Chris Holtman would have been the next head coach of Memphis. Um, go hire Steve Forbes for $750,000. Every Memphis fan now is like, Man, should have hired Forbes. I was like, you should have hired Forbes last year. I told you that. I did whole radio shows about it. Uh, Eric Musselman would have been gr- uh, solid. Like you throwing away three around three million dollars, you could have done something other than hire, you know, a, a, a coach who hadn't been in the Sweet Sixteen since he left Kentucky. It's just a, I, I was optimistic for Memphis because I was like, hey, you know, Memphis coaches usually win. Tubby usually wins. Might be fine, but I made it clear this is not what I would have done, and it's gone worse than I imagined, and. Um, the poor Memphis sports scene signed Tubby Smith to a fifteen million dollar contract and Chandler Parsons to a ninety four million dollar contract. We got some yeah, we, we got some bad contracts in the city of Memphis uh, right now. But let's move on and wrap up with this. Georgetown hired Patrick Ewing. You in favor of that? Yeah, that's right. Um, ultimately, no. If if it's a yes or no, I'm saying no. Uh, I'm saying Georgetown. Three years from now, will maybe be in a little bit of a better spot, maybe, but it will not be as successful as it would have been if it had somehow been able to lure Tommy Amaker away. And it says something. I mean, part of it's just family life, and I know Amaker's wife works at Harvard, and that's a really great area to live when you're making good money. But you couldn't get Tommy Amaker to leave Harvard to go coach at Georgetown. That's amazing, considering how much Georgetown was willing to pay. Also says something about John Thompson Jr.'s ever, you know, present influence over the program. Ewing has now come out and said that John Thompson, his coach, called him and advised him to take the job. Um, But also, you know, if you'd been able to get, say, Dan Hurley, who would have, you know, absolutely taken that job. um, That is my expectation and my forecast right now. I also believe, and I wrote this, this thing happens on like the day of the title game, and I got to write, I wrote a column on it real quick and tried to get cobbled together some thoughts. For Ewing, I don't, I think it's a win-win no matter what, because he's so beloved, even if it does not work, and even if this thing crashes and burns, he's never coached at the college level, he's very... I can't say he's very respected at the NBA level because if that was the case, he would have gotten an NBA head coaching job at this point. But he is he is certainly someone that, if this does not work, will be able to go back to the pro level, be an assistant coach, and perhaps eventually maybe, though no guarantees, try and get one shot at coaching at the NBA and he can say, listen, you know, Georgetown was a whole different deal or whatever and whatever, whatever. Um they're going to love Ewing there no matter what. This could be really bad. He just He's the second most important person in the history of that program and, and always will be uh, simply because he won a national title there. And he was, he was really one of the very first 
big time national story recruitment stories ever. Like where's Patrick Ewing going to go and him picking Georgetown, what that meant for that school for big time black athletes. I mean, you cannot overstate how important he is to that school. So if this is an awful three year experience and Georgetown is never above 500, they're still going to love him forever and they're still going to forgive him. So this is really the only job that he could or should or would have ever taken at the college level because he has said so many times that he wants to be an NBA coach. But it's his alma mater. It's different. I don't hate the hire, but if you're saying yes or no, would you have gone Ewing? All things considered, I would say no as of right now, and then I'll tag it with this. If Georgetown gets really good again, gets really good again, and is in the mix for three seeds and four seeds and five seeds and finishing top two in the big East and Ewing's the coach. Well, that's super interesting. It's a lot of fun. If he can get big time players there, obviously Georgetown being a factor in the big East would be great. I, I just don't know. And I will say this GP, I don't know how many people you've talked to, but in talking to people around the business and, and on the NBA side and the college side, nobody has any idea how this is going to go. I mean, usually with coaching hires, you can get a firm idea. I'm getting stuff all over the place. Something that Ewing is so built for, the, like, the ethic, the work ethic that he'll be good. Other people think that he's going to be totally lost in recruiting. So it's fascinating because I don't get the sense that anyone has any idea how this will go. You've had Mullen not work out that great so far at St. John's. Clyde Drexler bombed at Houston. And now Ewing, those are three guys that were on that 92 Dream Team that have gone back to coach at their alma maters. If Ewing fails and Mullen continues to not get the job done, that might be enough to say that going forward, these kind of hires might not be worth it. Uh, you're exactly right. I mean, who knows? Uh, Clyde Drexler was a disaster. Fred Hoiberg was awesome. You know, there, there's precedent to argue either side of it. Um, I guess I would say this. Yeah, you know, Patrick's respected, but like, for the most part, there, if you're a 15 year NBA assistant, there's a reason why you're a 15 year NBA assistant. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like you know, it, you, if if that if you interview for job and job after job after job, you don't ever get them. There's usually a reason why. Um, I would have probably hired Dan Hurley before I hired Patrick Ewing, but I don't mind this. It's kind of cool. Like Patrick Ewing is a larger than life figure from my childhood. And I can't remember where I talked, whether I talked about this on radio or on this podcast, but like you, did, I, you, you talked about it. On the yeah, podcast. like you yeah. know, like Patrick Ewing was a star in the in the in the early '80s of college basketball, and so to see him back at Georgetown is kind of a cool deal. And I, I'm willing to take a, a wait and see um, approach, um, you know. But like the idea that Chris Mullins coaching at St. John's and Patrick Ewing's coaching at Georgetown is pretty, yeah, is pretty uh, remarkable. So uh, I wish him luck. It'll be a good story if he does get it. Uh, turned around. Last thing before we get out of here. Um, it's now being reported that the Nebraska Sheriff's Department is investigating the death threats Kentucky fans made against John Higgins. I don't know if you saw like the Omaha television station report that they did on and they went and talked to John and it was just like just a reminder of how bananas that was. And it reminded me, you and I, I don't even know if you saw it, but I think you were tagged in it. During the national semifinals, we got like a five page Twitter note from a Kentucky fan? Do you remember this? I remember seeing it in my mentions, but it was during the game. Right. I remember so, seeing it in my mentions being like, this dude is sending this during the Final Four. 
And then my mentions got filled up, so I never read what. Yeah, I so it's funny. So he's like, uh, you know, I'm not one of the crazy fans, but I, uh, I, I took issue with you guys, you know, labeling us all as crazy. Which, by the way, we didn't go back and look at the, listen to the stupid podcast. I was like, listen, there's more Kentucky fans than there are anybody else. So you have more good ones, more bad ones, more reasonable ones, more crazy ones. There's just more of everything, and so there are more crazy ones. And I don't know why that guy didn't hear that part of the podcast, but it is like you can go listen to it. It is what we said. I made it very, very clear. We're not painting with a broad brush here. We're talking specifically about the maniacs. Um, but I guess I would say to him, and shout out to Devin Downey, uh, because he shouted out Devin Downey, and he likes the podcast. So I'm not trying to be mean. But, like, if you send us a five-page note in the middle of the national semifinals ranting and raving – and then trying to prove that you're not crazy? That's not the way to do it. Because almost like it makes, like, by, if you send a five page note in the middle of the national semifinals to two people you've never met, it means you're kind of crazy. Like, it, 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 it probably suggests you are exactly who we're talking about. You just don't know. And if you take the time to go to an official's Facebook page and write the stuff that some of the, some, some, some of those Kentucky fans wrote, you're insane and just a bad person. And so it doesn't mean that all Kentucky fans are insane. I have friends who are Kentucky fans. They're completely reasonable. But there is a there's a, a a percentage of them that are bananas. And now some of those are being investigated by the uh, sheriff's department in, in Nebraska. So good luck. I hope you don't get prosecuted unless you deserve it, in which case I, I hope you do get prosecuted. Remember, uh, you can subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. That's the best way to get the latest episodes as quickly as possible. So please do that. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, I'm going to go take some DayQuil now, and uh, we'll talk to you again at some point. Don't make me commit to it right now. We'll just talk to you again at some point. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.